welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. And today we're welcoming Catherine Ziff. She's she lives here in Athens, not that far from me, in fact. And she wrote a wonderful book called Asylum on the Hill. And it's about the what they used to call the Athens Lunatic Asylum, which sounds terrible. But it it's had many names over the years, and it's now owned by the university, and they use it for classrooms and museum and things. So this is Catherine Ziff. Hello, Hello. Catherine. Good, good morning. Good morning to both of you, Barbara and Morgana. It's, it's fun uh, to be here morning. today. Good mo- morning. That. Good morning to you. <laughs> Apparently, I haven't had enough coffee. Yeah. Um, what led you to write this book, which is... An amazing book. I've I've read it twice now. Oh, well, um, we moved here in 1998, and I started um, graduate school doctoral program in counselor education. The year after, my mother came up to visit from North Carolina, where where I'm from, and um, I was looking thinking about a topic for a dissertation, and we were. Uh, I think we went for a walk up there, just touring around the town. And she said, why don't you write about that old place up on the hill? And I thought, well, maybe so. I had a background in public policy um, analysis. said this was a large state um, hospital, large state organization started back in the 19th century that provided clinical mental health. So I thought that would be a good fit. And Whew. It was an 11-year journey, not the dissertation. I finished that um, pretty pretty much in order. But then the Ohio University Press um, agreed to take it on to a book. And so I, I delved back into the archives and the history and worked on the book. So it was a, an 11-year process prompted by a casual comment from my mother. <laughs> Moms be doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's that's how this podcast got started. Was mom was like, "Why don't we just do a podcast?" And I was like, "Well," and lo and behold, why not? Look at you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I I was very excited when this book came out because if you're a casual researcher, if you're not an academic, it isn't easy to find stuff about the the ridges that's what what, that's what it's called now for for the listeners who don't live here in Athens um except for the like you know popular mythology of all of the terrible things that happened there and um that's so haunted blah 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 Um, yeah if you you google you get all kinds of stuff yeah along those lines and and you don't get much about how it was it was started and and the story of that, as I read in your book, was fascinating to me. So if you could explain a little bit for the readers, listeners, good God, what is wrong with me? I'm not used to doing this in the morning. That's what's wrong with me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, the beginning. Well, mental health care over the ages, I mean, millennia, has has had all kinds of um, comings and goings and taken many forms and many philosophies. And this, this um, hospital was started under what became known as moral treatment, which was a, a different way of 
um, looking after or providing mental health care that actually began in the late 1700s in Western Europe. Um, I'll pick one example was a, um, a Quaker tea merchant, William Took in, in England in Great Britain, had a friend who went to one of the state asylums. And back then there were, uh, started really in the 1600s, very large, very large urban um, hospitals for people with mental illness with punitive kinds of treatment, great insensitivity, uh, insensitivity. People were put in cages and put out front on certain days. People could come by and pay money and look. There were chains, there were punishments. So um, Mr. Uh, the tea merchant's friend died in one of the asylums and he thought there's gotta be a better way. He was a Quaker. So he set up a small, funded a small, mental hospital, 150, 200 people, which would have been small for them, uh, based on uh, principles maybe of the Quaker faith, um, uh, kind treatment, uh, humanist or, or humane uh, kinds of treatment, um, possibilities for getting well. And uh, that took off in, it was happening at the same time in Italy, in, in France, in Germany, this kind of, um, wasn't really a backlash, but a counterpoint to the uh, large urban institutes. And here um, it became, um, became well, Kirkbride, Dr. Kirkbride, who was the head of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, as it was called in the 1850s, went, went to Great Britain and learned about this, brought it back to the United States, and it became known as the Kirkbride Plan. He codified um, this Kirkbride method of what came to be known as moral treatment, not so much about morality, but moral meaning uh, humane treatment, um, behaving in a, with a moral civility um, for care. And it involved, you can go online and, and if you just Google Kirkbride plan, you can read, it's been, there's a kirkbrideplan.com has transcribed all that and got it up on their website, but it relied on the architecture. It re uh, relied on, um, nature, the arts, humane treatment. Um, so our hospital here was the fifth of these types of Kirkbride hospitals, hospitals built along the Kirkbride plan in Ohio in the 19th century. It was the fifth and last one built under that plan. Uh, so it opened in, let's see, Cornerstone was laid in 1868 and opened in 1874. And well, there's just so much to say about it, but you know, the um, the, the large windows, which would provide ventilation and light, uh, even the bars over the window for security were put in the form of wrought iron designs, you know, the mandalas that are up there in the different yeah. forms. Um, it was built uh, to catch the prevailing, um, oriented to catch the prevailing breezes. They have uh, large hallways and then nature. You're supposed to be able to have a beautiful view out the window from where you were and also enough land to where people could take walks, be outdoors. And uh, working farms were also part of the plan. Good, good water supply, clean water, bright light, and humane treatment. Um, originally, there was a lot of effort put here in Athens. And I'll stop talking in a minute for you to comment and go on, but a lot of effort in Athens uh, for the design of this, they brought over a uh, an asylum superintendent from Cincinnati to come and review everything. Dr. Gundry, I believe. Now I'll have to look that up. But anyway, um, he came and gave advice. They had proposed, there was a proposal for like strong rooms in each ward. And he said, no, 
uh, or places where people could be contained. And he said, no, we'll just have a one room in different places where if someone needs to be alone, they can do that. But they, uh, there, there was a, a large emphasis, particularly in Athens, on no restraints, um, very sparing use primarily by law enforcement, bringing patients to the hospital in the 19th century of what was called then the sleeves, which were straitjackets. Um, so very sparing use or an emphasis on no use of physical and chemical restraints back in those days. So that's, um, and there were concerts, there was a concert hall, there was a ballroom built, um, as you know, in the main part of the hospital. Uh, there were eventually congregate dining, um, lots of actually arts performances. There was a, the, the, the super, superintendent had a, a budget for pictures, so he would, it was always a he at that time, um, would select uh, art to go on the walls that would be elevating and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a different kind of philosophy that uh, ended, petered out, came to an end by about the 1890s when um, psychiatry began to move out of the asylums into the laboratory into the idea of brain research, even that early on. So kind of a long answer to a short question. Um, It's a great answer to a short question. Um, I have a left field question about um, mental hospitals pre-Kirkbride plan. Um, Would that have had any relation to the development of the free hospitals for the poor? Um, In the 19th century, I guess they were called, the language back then was the poor houses. Yeah. And once the hospitals were built, people were then who needed more care were moved from what they called the poor houses or the poor hospitals uh, for the people who had no money for anything else or needed care would be moved to the hospitals. There are many instances of people coming on the train. I can think of five ladies from Chillicothe were put on the train with the sheriff wearing their straight jackets and brought to the train station in Athens, took a wagon up and were admitted. And so, so the, the, the the poor houses became uh, um, one venue, one place, one source of referrals for people to come to the larger, the larger hospitals and have okay. actual act more care from a, um, a whole team, I guess, people. Yeah. More specific care. And but there was, less. there was definitely a, a relationship there. That's a fascinating okay. study. We have one in Athens, you know, out towards Chansey, the old, um, and they call County yeah. homes. Also, County, home. came, oh. County homes. Yeah. And you know, they were originally called the poor houses. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. I'm just very interested in that because I learned about the beginnings of hospitals um in a class with the leper houses way back mm-hmm. yeah. in the Middle Ages. Oh yes. Where it was the the beginning of okay, we have leper hospitals that are small cottage industry hospitals mm-hmm. basically that gradually evolved into like poor houses in the cities and those became the free hospitals. And then you had the asylums and it's just such an interesting thread of how do we care for people who don't fit in society for some 
in some way. Yes. Leprosy was viewed as a moral failing in right? the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yes. And then mental illness was viewed as a moral failing as you get into the 1800s. Well, and there was, you know, way back there, yes, or, or be a moral failing or possession, you know, whatever. Yeah. And the, it's a wonderful thread. And I, I go back think to think of 2,000 years ago with the Asclepian temples, uh, with mm-hmm. the, the physician that were established somewhat like the moral treatment. There were these hospitals, um, temples, they called them then, established uh, in the Mediterranean up on, usually up above water so there could be a water view. There was, there was dream work, there was body work, um, water treatment, um, proper diet. The dream work was the hallmark mm-hmm. uh, and w- where a person would go into the dream chamber and report the dreams to the priests who would then follow the treatment. Um, and then you would go in the after, uh, those went on for a long time and then the, uh, the church in the form of um, monasteries would provide care. Yep. Um, the hospital at uh, San Remy where Go, Van Gogh was a patient was a very old medieval hospital. Um, so there were multiple ways and threads you can see. And, and it depends on what the culture thought at the time of would be the causation. Um, yeah. You know, if it was evil spirits, it was punishment, you know. So and what society thought you know, was correct. So there's been fluctuations through When you look now at some of the things that are have emerged recently or in the recent past in mental health, you have um, uh, activity therapy, you have uh, horticulture therapy, art therapy, dance therapy. The uh, Some of these things, nature therapy, come out of or have the same thread that ran through moral treatment and I think go all the way back to 2,000 years ago with the Asclepian. Oh, they definitely yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. The, the leper hospitals put great emphasis on sunlight, clean water, beautiful gardens that were yeah. to be worked. Yeah. Um, and just this sense of the environment having an impact on the human body and the mind. Mm-hmm. Even with physical ailments, there was this sense of beautiful things and peace and quiet and rest and care, care. will care. influence, yeah. it, like caring. Mm-hmm. And I find it very interesting that there have, there's been almost waves mm-hmm. and troughs mm-hmm. of empathy mm-hmm. for yes. so many ailments, yes. physical and mental. Yes. Yeah. Because there will be moments in history where people are very empathetic mm-hmm. and genuinely want to help. And then there are moments in history where people are brutal mm-hmm. and it's not so much about helping as just quietly shoving people into somewhere where they don't have to be part of society because nobody wants to talk about it. Or, or nobody wants either wants or has the ability to care for the person, you know, there, uh, there was a, Ohio was the second state to establish a board of state charities, which was to oversee all the institutions that the state had, the prisons and whatnot, and asylums. And at one point they went out, this was the 19th century, and did kind of an inventory of what the need was for mental health care and brought back examples of people, you know, having a family member locked in the basement or, or a, a, yeah. a teenager tied up in the barnyard. That was the best they could do. You know, they had to. Yeah. That was the best they could do um, or the only thing they knew to do. And 
so they would document need for um, better care. Yeah, centers of I, care. Yeah, centers of centers of care where someone could come. Um, yeah, and then of course all kinds of people would end up ended up um, in the hospitals um, for various reasons. Uh, yeah, there was staff that was. I, I tried to document in my book everything I could find because at the time there wasn't a very. If it wasn't anywhere, as you mentioned, was there? There was nowhere to go where you could get a collection, have a coherent picture of everything. There were lots and lots of pieces. Um, and so there were, there were instances of people who, this is when they began to call for staff training of attendants who would resort to beating patients mm-hmm. and know what else to do. So then you would hear the superintendents, 1880s even, saying, well, we need, we need to have, you can't just put anybody to work in these hospitals, that we need training. And they began arguing very early for a psychiatric nursing program, which eventually was established in the early 20th century up there and operated for a number of years. Yeah. Um, That's one of the things I find fascinating. Another thing that I thought was interesting was one of the, one of the first administrators, Dr. William Parker, who had been a field surgeon during the Civil War. And he documented in his letters to his wife and to his acquaintances, basically PTSD. They didn't have a word for it, really, that really explained it. But he was talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. And his wife also wrote back to him and talked about the trauma of people losing family members during the war. And that was part of why he lobbied so hard to have a hospital set up in Athens, in large part because it wasn't a huge center of commerce. It wasn't a big city. Um, and he he wanted it to be out there in a rural area where people could have occupational therapy on the farm and also have beautiful things to look at and experience. And one of the things I found completely fascinating when I read your book and then did more research was how tied together the fortunes of the city of Athens, the university and the asylum were. And how much much interplay there was, you know, I asked some questions on Facebook, just, just trying to see if there were people who remembered when the hospital was open. Oh yes. So many people were saying, Oh, my, my mom used to get our milk from the dairy barn there because it was the best milk that you could get. Mm -hmm. And, or, oh, or the children would go children would go up and have ice skating and they go get ice cream in the dairy. Yeah. You ask anybody who's been here for more than 25 years and there will be a story. Yeah. About the yeah. asylum. Yeah. Yeah, I basically got here right as it was closed. Mm-hmm. So, hey, I 1993. Saw the, yeah. Yep, I saw the transition of it going from an active hospital I saw some of the people that they just basically tossed out onto the street. Thank you, Ronald Reagan, for your very useful ideas about these things. Uh, um, the, the, and the, the, un, the unfunded mandates, community yes. care, unfunded. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So community care was, there were several street people just wandering around in this tiny town. You know, you expect that in 
places like New York or Boston or San Francisco, you don't expect to see people just thrown out uncaringly in a small town. And it, it did disturb me. I, I was well, confused. And, and to, to be fair, the, um, uh, in talking with um, the, the superintendent at that time, they really did do a good effort. They made a, a almost Herculean effort to try to place people and find places for people and get the social workers helping. But it, was, it just was a they very large everything. task. Couldn't do yeah. everything. It was very, you know, and it was heartbreaking for staff, some staff. Uh, yeah. Um, very difficult for some families. Um, we lived in Philadelphia at the time. The streets were full of, um, of uh, all kinds of people in need of shelter, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and doctor, going back to doctor, it was Dr. Parks, um, Parker Johnson was a, what well, he described himself as a country doctor from Athens. And there's a, maybe you discovered it, there's a wonderful archive of his letters yes. um, up in Alden Library. It's just wonderful to read through those. You get such a picture. Um, and he was puzzled by, by um, soldiers who were stricken and uh, ill, but, but there was no, no apparent physical cause. So mm-hmm. that's, and then he got himself a let. He was so very smart politician, I guess, as well as a very capable doctor, was in charge of two field hospitals, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. And um, he got himself elected to the state legislature and put together a committee to establish a hospital in Southeast Ohio where there was none. And um, through um, various occurrences, one of the three trustees in charge of choosing the location was from Athens. And mm-hmm. so, so Athens was chosen out of, I think, 29 different uh, yeah. loca- locations trying to get it. And there yeah. was a huge, that was a big, par- you know, in the book, there's a big parade and it was a huge, uh, well, it was an honor to have this big hospital and this new mode of uh, treatment. And it was a, a huge uh, economic boost for the town. Um, yeah. Jobs uh, as, a, as a, a market for goods um, at that time. The university was enrollment was declining. I mean, I mean, very. I think the number of students was in the two digits, um, and it was still town still on a barter economy, and this was a a gigantic um, economic development boost for the town. There were think of the there were hundred at least a hundred people staffed, hundred probably living up there who would come for all their what they needed in the town. Everything that patients needed was purchased before they started having their big gardens. There were, and even after much food was purchased, there were certainly big contracts for coal and uh, milk and meat and so forth. So it was a big, yeah, yeah. big political economic. Um, I think that's where Athens learned how to, the city of Athens learned how to um, be a, a real center of state institutions. Um, the town mm-hmm. pay, played a role in getting uh, the uh, normal school, the first normal school, the college of education established uh, here, which was another big boon because it meant a lot more students, a lot more faculty. That was also in the 19th century. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of reverberated throughout the history, political and economic history of the town. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, even just at the beginning when they're building the hospital, that's builders coming in, yes. that's materials coming in, yes. that's a reason to have more traffic on a railroad. Everything. Which 
just that's it's such a boon and you know at least OU and the town are still very intertwined oh yes yes and now that OU owns the ridges it's it's almost like things have come full circle like it's it's still a tight-knit part of the community it is and people really I think feel that still in the town yeah Mm -hmm. well everybody goes hiking up there Mm -hmm. everybody goes to see the museum that's now inside the ridges you know there's artist studios there's classrooms the (laughs) <laughs> we have a preschool. We there have the child care center. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got the Dairy Barns Art Center. We, you know, we, where we also have summer art programs for kids, and we still have performances going on in the auditorium. Yep. It's, yeah, uh, it's it, in in many ways the strands have um, have uh, continued. And, yeah. and you go up there now to walk, and I don't know if you've seen all those new, I guess they're fairly new, the signage that's up there that gives all the yeah. information. It's re- really um, kind of exciting. It, it, it feels like the university has, you know, invested itself in establishing a presence up there on the, the trails. Then we have mm. the research lab. We have the um, the compost facility. Um, oh, that's that's yes. an amazing place. It is. And you can go there. You can buy it for $2.50, um, a five-gallon bucket. You can buy it and bring yep. it home. So that's another interesting community connection. They'll even shovel it yeah. for you. <laughs> and I think that's that's almost a full circle because you used to be able to go buy milk and yeah. vegetables and jam and things, and now you're still able to buy organic Compost, matter, but yeah. it's the end product right. of the eggshells and jam. Yeah, that's right. Good and point. And the observatory. Yes. The little tiny observatory. Little tiny observatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they have events up there, star walks. Um, oh yes, I've, I've gone to an eclipse event there. It's very oh. pleasant. Oh, and George, probably maybe George and um, Tom do a uh-huh. wonderful, wonderful job. And, and George's tours uh, are yep. always on offer from the History Center. Yeah, it's many it's threads up there. Many threads. I, I think yeah. a lot about preservation of the landscape, um, the forests and mm-hmm. fields, and I think they're they're doing that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have some interesting research ponds up there. Um, the the ponds that, you know, in the spring they're full of snow melt and 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 rainwater, and then they have they they dry out a bit in the summer, and they have all of these, you know, cans buried and and with sticks so that you can pull it out and see how much water comes in at different times wow. and you can wow. take soil and and water samples i you know when i first saw it i was like what is this up here and then i started poking at it and i realized <laughs> oh this must be the ou students coming up and doing environmental um work yep. and that's yep. to me that's really really cool they essentially use that area in a way as a bit of a laboratory for everything. For sure. They do. They have that, um, I don't know. They have, uh, I forget what it is, a crop growing. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not corn. Is it sugar cane? Anyway, some different, uh, all kinds of different things growing that you can see. Yeah. um, Off the trails. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think of the, the uh, children's center, the preschool, which Morgana's younger brother went to. Mm-hmm. Um, we we lucked into it too because it's very difficult to get kids in there because it's it's a small program, 
Um, and it's popular. And yeah. it's very popular. Yeah. But it's kind of like the moral treat. It's like the little baby version of moral treatment. Yeah. <laughs> it's, they it's have gardens. Of, yeah, it's kind of Montessori-ish, and, mm -hmm. and it works really well. And it's in the old stable. You know, what, what people think of when, when you say the Kirkbride, that's only part of it, that Kirkbride building, which is the two wings and then the central portion, one wing for women, one, one wing for men. And it's a beautiful, uh, just high Victorian looking building. It's cathedral-esque. Yes. It is. It is. It is. And go inside, you've got the, the staircase, spiral staircases. Oh yeah. Big staircase and, uh, the small tile mosaics on some of the floors is just just gorgeous. The tile work, uh, the woodwork. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that, that, you know, people think that's the only building, but there's so many other buildings, and there's tons of buildings up there, all of them with really interesting architecture. And it was just such a Herculean effort to build all of that. You know, and to build on the Kirkbride plan, those are all huge buildings, and there are not very many of them left in the United States. There are not in, in that are in any kind of repair as, as yeah. ours are, and you can go back. They've opened up one of those um, uh, archways on the left-hand side of the building, um, the, which would have been the men's side of the building. Opened up those archways into that uh, green area. And you can see some of the building has crumbled away, and you can see the thickness. How many, um, how many uh, sets or how many layers of bricks are, mm -hmm. especially toward the foundation um, mm -hmm. of the building? It's an immense amount of construction material. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Is, which is, is still there? Yeah, and which was sourced here, up on the the ridge itself. The the, the bricks were made on site. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was a delay in construction being completed because the weather was bad, it, and they were drying them outdoors. They build them in the wooden forms. So many bricks, millions of bricks. Um, yeah. Built from, I mean, the place is built from the ground that it uh, that it sat on. Sits yeah. On. And it, of course, the foundation had to be so thick because the building's so big. That's what held and it, it up. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's it's kind of just it's unimaginable unless you see it. I think up close as to how much effort went into that. Um, and, and really the, the care that was outlined for the first 10 or 15 years of its existence was excellent. Uh, oh, it was exemplary. It was, it was amazing. Really. Um, the, they did all sorts of, well, it was in one of those upward, you know, the upward trajectory of the waves of how we treat yeah. mentally ill people. Um, and then, you know, then it started going downhill again. And I think the the worst was probably, I would say, in the late 50s, mid 60s, well, well, 70s. That been, That's just. It, well, we had with the with the late 50s and 60s, we had the lobotomy years mm -hmm. yes um which was going on all over the nation all in yes. fact western europe and and the hospital became very full it was very hard to mm -hmm. refuse um the uh, refuse admissions it became very full um over overcrowded 
and uh, most likely underfunded. I know there was always a struggle to, to try to keep it up to code, mm-hmm. whatever the codes were at the time. Um, and yeah, lots of memories though. When you hear lots of all different kinds of memories uh, from people yeah. who were patients or who worked there, there's some rosy memories. There's not so rosy memories. All all kinds, all kinds. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think the story of the lobotomies is somewhat sensationalized just whenever mm-hmm. you look at lobotomies well, from anywhere. Yeah, well, I don't... Because it was horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was and it was brutal. Bad. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, I think brutal is probably a pretty good word. Yeah. It was the you were scrambling people's brains like they were eggs <laughs> through their eyeballs. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes um, not even with anesthesia because I don't well, know. Well, the type of anesthesia they use is shock um, therapy, shock therapy. And you can, um, I had access one time to a log of, um, patients who, who were had the lobotomies and it would list how many shocks it would take for them to mm-hmm. um, uh, become anesthetized enough. So, yeah. you know, those were not uh, happy treatments. No, no. no. I suppose, I mean, the sensationalized to be, it, it it's talked about as if that was the standard of care the whole time. Yeah. Right. No, not everybody got no. That would be a small percentage of the total um, number of patients, but it was a, Continuous practice for some years, it even was. even after he had been. Um, now his name escapes me. I'm looking um, him up so I can get yeah. it exactly right. Yeah, uh, after he was um, uh, disbarred from medicine, um, he he continued on for a while until finally he, he was stopped. Yeah, there's a bi- someone wrote a biography of him, um, and Barbara will have his name in a minute. I can look at the back of the book. Let's see. Um. I I struggle with understanding why that was accepted. Walter Freeman. Walter Freeman. Medically. Yeah, Walter Freeman. And yes, he traveled the country doing lobotomies in various places, Mm -hmm. wherever the they would have him essentially. Um, and he liked to show off. So some of that sensationalism was him. Yes. It was yes. his he personality. Was a showman. He was a showman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he, I have to give this to him. Originally, he really thought he was helping. And it was really for the patients who treatments, other treatments didn't work for. Um, now... And, you know, I feel like it could have been obvious that mm-hmm. you're not doing this with any kind of finesse because, you, I don't know, brains just, you just can't just just stick a pokey thing in oh. somebody's brain and move it around and, and know what you're doing. I mean, they, they didn't look even the- look inside, you know. 
with the techniques, uh, with with all the imaging and all the uh, techniques that we have now, it you, you compare it, and it's, it's yeah, pr- mm-hmm. seems particularly bizarre. Yeah, that in the twentieth century, this came to pass. I believe it may it originated in Italy, and he became a devotee. It was or Italy. Portugal, yeah, um, of someone there, and yeah, uh, it was a Portuguese doctor, mm-hmm. and then and then it's it was in Italy. He worked in Italy, and then Freeman saw the paper. And thought, hey, I can do that. (laughs) No. And it was a completely different procedure when it was first invented by the other doctor. That involved drilling holes in different places and inserting needles. Yes. I believe. Yes. It was much more precise in a modern day trephination kind of way. If that's precise at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the 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 transorbital. Speaking of going back to the beginning of yeah, you know how we dealt with mental illness. Oh yeah, way back. Skull. Drill a hole, let it out, let the spirits out. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. yeah. There have been, been there's a and, there's a wonderful little book by Roy Porter, uh, real thin, but it's it's like a sweeping history of mental how mental illness, mental health uh, through the ages, and he does a wonderful job of. And so readable and um, with a critical eye of zipping you through these these eras and, and making sense of it. Just want to put a plug in for that little book. Okay, oh, yeah, Roy that's a good one. Yeah. Well, I'm going to look that up. British, yeah. British physician. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I the 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 lobotomy is one of the things that that gets the uh, asylum a, a kind of a sensationalized bad reputation. Uh, uh, a, a lurid um yeah mm-hmm. but then there's also the practices in the 19th century of women being admitted for reasons that weren't necessarily that they were insane yeah oh, or mentally ill or anything of the sort and that is a subtler sort of thing it's a subtler uh darkness shadow over the the asylum historically speaking but that was true all across the country and in europe that husbands could legally have their wives declared unfit insane whatever and they they could go get married again well the um the uh, the debate in academia in the, in the asylum literature for over for years for you know decades has been uh, was why were asylums established why did the rise of asylums in in the current day was it for social control or was it for humane reasons and the answer is both yes mm-hmm. the answer is both and there are other way in many ways the social control there were. Uh, concerns about immigrants in the cities. What were all these immigrants going to, you know, and there were hospitalizations there. Um, uh, people were hospitalized from, it's hard to find those in the hospital records and the documentation and the records of those kinds of things because they're not going to probably say that. But um, it's a mixed story. As anything that humans do, it's a mixed story. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there was good and bad in all mm-hmm. uh, time periods. Um, one of the, one of the things that I was thinking of was when Nellie Bly got herself committed yes. 
in New York State. She was a journalist. Did, yes. And she almost didn't get out. Yep. <laughs> um, that was a risky venture. Yes, yeah. it was. It was. Her editor had to come and rescue her. Uh, and she ended up writing a book called 10 Days in a Madhouse yeah. about how easy it was for yes. women to be declared insane, unfit, uh, socially unacceptable, you know, uh, some of them were, were infected with, um, syphilis. Mm -hmm. So that was another thing that people would get. Which admittedly does have a lot of neurological effects. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, and you don't want that being spread around, but sometimes women were just put away because they thought they might have syphilis. Mm Mm-hmm. And they didn't. Right. right. So, yeah, she was in the middle of all of this and, and you know, was looking around. And she, she said in her book, you know, there were plenty of women who were just as rational as you and I and everyone else. And they were, they'd been there for years. You know, and she so that was a social that was someone using the powers of journalism journalism for the forces of good as yeah. opposed to yeah. yellow journalism which is <laughs> right. you know at that time also being practiced sure um there were um you know other particular to women kinds of issues one was postpartum depression mm-hmm. um, there are many examples of uh, and you read the case studies of women with just um postpartum depression they would be at home maybe they, they have also, to complicate that, they may have had four children or more yeah. uh, to care for. There are no relatives to help them out. And so hospitalization would have been uh, the answer. And in some cases, it was actually a, a, success, um, you know, a success story, just a place to go and recover. And you could see um, some, I remember seeing some notes from physicians saying that if in the commitment documents that we need, she needs to come here. So this is another example of one of our arguments that we need to have smaller hospitals like this in our communities. This is like Mm -hmm. 1880. So that she doesn't have to travel so far. She can just go and be restored through this um, postpartum period. Uh, So she'll be safe and the children will be safe as well. So that was, you know, another particular women's kind of consideration. So a terrible sort of heartbreaking example. And I think I put it in the book of a woman who just had her, I don't know, her fifth or sixth child. She was in her forties. Her husband was abusive. Her sisters had died. Um, And so uh, this was uh, sort of a last resort for Mm -hmm. her to be able to recover. Yeah. On the other hand, something like that was needed. Oh yeah. 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 So it's, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But um, goodness. Yes. The, the intersection of, of women and asylumdom, um, people who were homeless, or we would say homeless or houseless, without a home, called, called tramps in the 19th century. And it was considered uh, a great evil because these were not working people and it was a threat to the social order. And mm-hmm. so, oh, yes. so there would be hospitalization there. Um, uh, people who, uh, but often they would, sometimes people would, uh, men would find a way to become hospitalized in the winter. And then when spring came, it was easy just yeah, to, yeah. because there were freedom to go about uh, the asylum grounds, yeah. go off and the, be on your way. 
I, it was so interesting that because into the early modern era, the demonization of being houseless. I know. I mean, was intense. Yes. They published yes. like sheet, like woodcuts and sheets of listing the different types of people who were mendicants and with different mm -hmm. names and were like, this is what you should do to them. And they had to wear signs and bells around their necks yeah. in some areas of Europe. And it, there was a Which quote because for, they didn't fit into the social order. And there was a quote from an Ohio governor in the 19th century referring to the great evil of tramps. The great yeah. words of speech about the great evil of tramps. And and it's it was a I feel like it was like a 200 year period mm -hmm. where they were quite demonized. Yeah. Because yeah. well into the 19 teens yeah. yeah. The, there's a staple in 1910 defect detective fiction of the tramp is going to be the murderer. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, tramps just trying to... to. He would he would flip that in some of his mystery stories, and it wasn't the tramp, you know. Right. Yeah. But, right. Well, but it was never the tramp was. in these detective yeah. stories yeah. either. But it's always like, well, it can't be these upright villagers. Obviously, a tramp broke into the library and strangled them for no right. reason. And I'm like, we need a scapegoat. Why is that? Yeah. yeah. It's yep. it's such a common trope. Mm -hmm. And I just there's a there's a topic for you. Evil. Yeah. There's a topic for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So so. And it, again, we look at all of the complexities of, of is mental health care punitive? Is it, or is it healing? Is it just, you know, is a mental hospital just a place where we just put people just to make them go away? Or is it a place of re restoration and rest? And, it's, all and it. renewal? it's all of it. It's all of and it. It's all of it all the time at different times. And that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's did you did you get kind of as you were working on this for 11 years did was there a time when you were just like why do i keep finding more stuff <laughs> oh well my dissertation like, advisor my dissertation advisor had to stop me uh, she said stop stop this is enough to to do <laughs> stop we'll give you we'll um, give you the the degree just stop just it stop <laughs> <laughs> But I couldn't, so I, had I kept the on. Same thing happened with a, with my J comp paper. I had the same thing happen. Stop! <laughs> I said, Morgana, Morgana, you've got to stop her. This is not going to get done. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was like, "You'll read forever. This I know enough. you will." Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. It was since it was a real. It ways. It was very intense. I would spend time, a lot of time up in Alden. I had permission to go back through all the records and just reading and reading about so much suffering and troubles, you know, it's, I wouldn't expect it, you know, third hand like that, but it was quite a, quite a process. I kept a little art journal while I would come home and sort of process um, things that way. Cause it was, it was so uh, an, an intense immersion. And sometimes it was also mm -hmm. um, tremendous amount of um, interest and fun going up there and walking. I spent, so many hours just walking around, you know, as you all have up on the trails and around the buildings, I felt like that was another way of absorbing the history, just being mm -hmm. there on the site, in addition mm -hmm. to reading and reading and reading and uh, so much. So, yeah. 
I'm sad that I never got to see the lakes that they had up there and ponds. Yeah, but, the park yeah. that's is there. Yeah, yeah. I have found a picture. See, there are a few pictures of the when the earth moving equipment was there, um, taking it all away and moving the road and uh, moving the river. Moving the river. Yeah. <laughs> what an undertaking. Yes. Yes. Uh, that that was Athens. How many times has Athens moved the river? At least twice. We'll probably move it again. Yeah, <laughs> or it'll move itself. Yeah, yeah. It, it as yeah. it is a river, it will move itself mm-hmm. eventually. Eventually, no matter what we do. This is going way off topic, but down here uh, on the bike path spur off of Columbia, uh, Columbus Road, there's a um, bike path and the uh, bridge and everything, and there's a. Um, what do they call it? an oxbow where the river yes. flows in a great U. And a couple of years ago when we had a lot of rain, the water just tore, just the river just cut itself a new current. It went right across yep. the land and straightened out the oxbow. So the river yep. will yes, it did. do what it wants to do. And there was a lone beaver there. A beaver! During the pandemic years, when I started biking, I saw the beginnings of a beaver dam and started keeping my eye out, and I spotted a lone beaver <gasps> for several weeks, just working about in that oxbow. <laughs> oh, how exciting! So he, that is I exciting. was so pleased. He said, "I'm going to take." I was like, "Hello, little friend." He said, "I'm going to take this as a project here, and now that this oxbow has been altered, yeah, yeah." Um, um, I don't know if he's still there. I haven't been out um, biking much because last semester tried to murder me. They were not as, successful. As I senior see. year does. <laughs> senior year. All right, Morgana. Senior year. Yeah, so you're closing. I'm on my last you're, semester. You're closing right in now. on it. Is it going well? Like it just started, so right? So far, yes. yes. Day yes. two. Yesterday was the first day. Today's day two. Yeah. So I'm telling you, you'll get that syllabus. As long as my professors unlock their syllabus. You'll get the syllabus. <laughs> he, he has until three. Just, you know, be, be patient. Does, does, you'll get it. It'll be all she right. She doesn't have... She doesn't have a syllabus yet. One, one of the no, classes. No, one of my professors hasn't unlocked it yet. Yeah. Oh, it'll, he's probably finishing up. It'll be right along to you, I'm sure. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I over-prepare. Yeah. yeah. I can tell. Yeah. So, um, now, what other sorts of things do you write about? Um, what are you working with now um, after well, this beautiful book? Well, well, the next thing I did, I, I think what I do is I do something for about six or eight or ten years and then write a book about it. And the second thing was I worked, uh, I was an elementary school counselor in the Athens schools for some years and um, developed a, a, ch- a child-centered therapeutic art group, program, group art program called Art Break, where the children would come to uh, gather them up in groups of four, five, six, seven, sometimes eight. Um, and and they would come to a short, uh, cho- choice-based, child-directed art studio in my room. And I set it up very carefully based on, on the expressive therapies continuum. And uh, we did some very interesting research and the children were just fantastic. They would take this opportunity uh, to choice-based art, sculpture, whatever I had in the room. And uh, many, many, um, I was just blown away by uh, the creativity and the growth 
that the children really constructed for themselves. So I wrote a book about it called Art Break, really how to do such a thing. So I wrote that. And um, then we did the program out. It was funded uh, for three summers in, in public libraries in our region um, for, for children um, in the some here in Athens County, down in Meigs County, Benton County, uh, Fairfield County, anyway. And then after that, I um, ended up with a Deep Ecology Art Fellowship down at the United Plant Savers in Rutland. They, I don't know if you've been there. Uh, yeah, down. And um, became interested in herbalism and um, actually worked as a a client with one of our herbalists here, Katie Crabb, in, in the region, really gifted, talented, extremely knowledgeable, highly trained herbalist. And um, and I had been, and, and then I started working with uh, flower essences. Now, now I had known about flower essences for 30 years. and But I went out and became trained to be a practitioner at the Flower Essence Society out in California, of course. And um, then ended up making a whole when the pandemic came, I set to it. Uh, I had a lot of time just to myself, and so I ended up making uh, 59 flower essences here in our region from our flowers, some of them native, some of them not, and as well as some flowers down in the South Carolina Low Country, where we spent some years, Matthew and I, uh, visiting twice a year, a couple weeks at a time. And so then I decided to put it all in a little book, what I knew, because it's very, very easy to make, and they work on sort of emotional balance. And so I put it all in a little book called um, Flower Essences Partnering, Partnering with Nature in Southeast Ohio, profile of uh, the flowers, uh, their properties. I listened to the flowers and took notes, and then how to make them. I gave the details on how I make them. And uh, which is according to kind of the tradition of flower essence making, which dates back, well, flowers have been used in healing. You would know, of course, forever. But the, yes. the, 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 yeah. the, Western, the Western flower essences um, from uh, um, Dr. Bach, a, a physician, an osteopathic, um, no, a, um, a physician in Great Britain, in London and um, homeopathic. He was a homeopathic physician in London, Harley Street. And then he set forth into the countryside and developed flower essences and he documented how he makes them. And so uh, they kind of went along for a while and went underground in the 1970s, there was a revival of the flower essences. And so there's, I mean, I have a book, a, a dictionary, an encyclopedia of flower essences divided up by continent. It's five or 600 pages long. There's just a lot now. And they're starting, really I, I'd say they're on the outside edges of, um, of uh, complementary, of integrative medicine. Um, right. On the outside, outside edges of any, but, but there's more, you know, you, you'll Google it and you'll read diatribes, but you'll also read, there's starting to be some decent research um, uh, along those lines. So, um, anyway, so I wrote a little book about uh, all the flowers and what what their properties are. It's mainly um, emotional balance, and it's available here at a few places in Athens. Um, little professor, make a little commercial here. Little professor will mail them to you. Um, 
there at White's Mill and Pharmacy and Kindred and that Southeast Ohio History Center has some. I was going to say it's at the History Center too. Yeah, at the History Center. I got my copies. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, and I, I, um, some of them, it is, uh, there are a few illustrations in there of some of the flowers. Um, that's so, wonderful. but the main thing I wanted to do, it's a very, and that's what Dr. Box, um, uh, Edward Box, uh, focus was these things can be easily made carefully and easy, made, easily made with intention. And so I, I put everything in there on so that people could make them themselves. I bottled them for a while, worked with AceNet and sold them at the Kindred, but I've embarked now on um, just sticking to maybe writing about things and some research um, as I'm trying to be more retired these days. I keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> keep working on that. Yeah. Keep working on it. Yeah. So I really like the, the flower essences as an extension of Appalachian tradition. Yes, absolutely. We have a we have a tremendous history here of of green medicine, of herbalism, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the eclectic medical. I have to send you my newsletter. The eclectic um, um, medicine movement, which began in the nineteenth century, continued in the nineteen thirties. Cincinnati was uh, there were thirty of those uh, eclectic schools of medicine throughout the nation. They talk about moral treatment. It was on based on um, herbal medicines drawn from the Native American, Black American, and uh, European American folk traditions of, of medicine. Um, and uh, clean water, exercise, diet was was the emphasis. And the, the flagship um, uh, school was in Cincinnati, and there were three um, brothers there who were... Uh, very interested or they were devoted to to herbal medicine and established a um, huge collection of materials on that plant materials books and it's now a museum in uh, in cincinnati but there's i need to go visit yeah Yeah. i do too yeah (laughs) i was just thinking that i'm gonna have a a, a field field trip trip. field trip they have field trip they have um and, and i'm looking at you barbara they have artist uh fellowships um for like to go work in their archives and and look at all the things and uh, so forth. So it's it's uh, worth a trip. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It, Morgana, yeah, you definitely. I'm about need to, to go. say the thing. Do what? <laughs> I'm about to say the thing. Mom's looking at me to say the thing. Okay. I'm working on. Um, I'm an intern at the library right now. Oh, um, Alden Library. But I'm working. Yes. Best place on campus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. It's the best. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm working on um, botanical illustration. Oh, well, then you need to go. Time. You need to go get the scholarship. You must go. Let's see. <laughs> oh. I, my favorite thing I have seen in like my entire academic life is I got to see a leaf from a botanical text that was a copy of the Materia Medica that was owned by Pope Julio III or V's personal physician from the the 1500-something. Wait, they have that up there in the library? They have that at Alden. At Alden? Oh! Yep. Yep. Isn't that cool? It's in one of the... It's in the Farfel collection. So they brought it out and showed it, and you got to look at it. Yes. 
Well, so tell about I it. I didn't get to touch it. So tell. Because, of course, you can't touch them. No, no. <laughs> well, I'm surprised they let eyeballs go on it. But so what? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Tell about the leaf. What Do you know what um, kind it was? I do not. It's in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it I speak it French small? and Russian. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's big. It's about... I would say it's about an inch and a half wider in all directions than a standard sheet of college rule. Oh, it's a big um, leaf. Yeah. It's beautifully illustrated. And because at th- that point, the printing press had happened. Yes. So it's not hand drawn or hand written or anything, but it's absolutely beautifully printed. And it's just so exciting and I got to see some other leaves because that collection goes back to you know the medieval era so there are some hand-drawn leaves of my favorite one was the illustration and explanation of hops and what hops does medically (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) Um, and it's in Latin Latin well you just got to learn all these languages I know (laughs) Well, now um, I, that's the worst part of loving the medieval period is it's like I need to learn Latin now. <laughs> probably you will. Well, we should let your listeners know that it's called the Lloyd Library over in Cincinnati, and I and I hope you'll investigate it. And both of oh, you. Oh yes. Yeah, that's that sounds like that's an a, amazing. That's place. a summer field yeah. trip for sure. And it sounds yeah. you, you look carefully um, at their offerings for fellowships and you know visiting whatever's. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've always had an interest in, in herbalism and, uh, it amazes me how far back the Appalachian tradition goes. It goes all the way back for the native Americans. It goes, you know, probably 2000 years, you know? Um, but it was also interesting to me to look at how, the European settlers brought their plants with them and their seeds Mm -hmm. with them. And then the native Mm -hmm. Americans picked up on those like right away. And then it Mm -hmm. became this mixture of traditions. That's just, you know, and then the Africans came Mm -hmm. with their seeds and, you know, all of that. And it just becomes this intellectual melting pot of knowledge and that tradition is, to me, that's probably the most valuable things that we have, particularly in Appalachia, that goes back, you know, generation to generation to generation of people. Uh, often an oral know. tradition, oral tradition yeah. often, but sometimes written. And it's a materia medica that has been developed over thousands of years. Yeah. yeah, just think of trial and error and see, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if if you some of that that came through the Europeans came from the Greeks, yeah, through oh yeah Muslim traders and <laughs> yeah, just it's this tradition that goes back to the classical period and before. Yeah, as things have been traded and things yes. have been translated and things have gone from language to language to language and been copied over and over and over. And yes. I I feel like willow bark becoming aspirin 
goes but i may be wrong but i feel like that goes back to the classical era it does oh as i recall yeah. probably if you go back as and read who was Willow it bark for aches and pains who was it pliny i guess p-l-i-n-y yes the roman, pliny. Uh, pliny the roman um well he did every he was a polymath but oh yes <laughs> but he yeah had, i love him i think he, did he had opinions a, about everything didn't he have a materia medica or a lot of writing or documentation he did, he did. have a lot of writing about medicine um galen galen pliny mm-hmm. um ptolemy i believe yep. as well if we're gonna bounce a little forward mm-hmm. and then the chinese had their own just complete mm-hmm. system Chinese of medicine, medicine. Yes. from before the Greeks and Romans had their shit together. Yeah. And, and right. the, the Indian subcontinent, Ayurvedic medicine oh, yeah. is another thing. And that one is really interesting to me because it takes food seriously as a medicine. And, mm-hmm. you know, what you eat at what times of day will you know, assist you in being as healthy as possible and all of the different spices that are used in cooking in India are also used for healing in a very sensible way, you know, and now we know that, well, you know, they, people in India said, oh, turmeric is, is, is very good for you and it can do, and now Western medicine has done research and it's, oh yeah, it is really good for you. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you really should eat it every day. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, you're a few thousand years late, but okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for helping. Um, but it's just amazing. All of the stuff is, is you know, out there. And Appalachia gets some of everything as more and more yeah. people come. And the culture gets all mixed up. Yeah. All sorts of and- new things happen. There's a great deal of value in herbalism and a great deal of value in old folk ways. Is all of it effective? No, it's not. But but nothing is all effective. A a lot of herbalism is. A lot of herbalism is in the hands of an experienced uh, practitioner. Yes. Wow. Uh, And I mean, it all works together. It it all works. It does. Yeah. All the the systems. And I mean, we could throw like... in midwifery while we're at it. Oh, God, oh, yes. Yeah. Because my grandmother, um, her first three children were delivered by midwives. So that that's with, it, you know, I mean, she died, what, 20 years ago. But that was still, to me, since she told me about it, it's within living memory. Absolutely. And, 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 and now uh, Morgana has, can carry that. Memory. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and um, they used herbs. And they're very effective. Mm-hmm. Or people wouldn't have used them. Yeah. Well, that's like, what it's a, That's the thing. It, uh, people don't eat things that taste gross if they don't think they're going to help. Yeah. And a lot of decoctations it's not that they taste bad. But different. They, they taste, taste different. Earthy. Yeah. They, they, ta- they, they taste medicinal. Mm-hmm. Medicine is not always a pleasant flavor. Um, cherry. It's not always but, cherry. Yeah. No. Oh. Sweet cherry. Red flavor. Red, That's fl- red what I flavor. Call it. It's it's red flavor. Right. Take your cough medicine. But, red flavor. 
you know, you'll have people be like, oh, well, why would you drink urine if you were a medieval doctor? And I'm like, because they were diagnosing diabetes by if your urine was sweet. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. The pulse. It's actually helpful. <laughs> yep. Like, it's not just that they were, like, weird. And it's were, research. Like, oh. yeah. It's research. It's like, the, 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 you didn't have, you know, blood tests and things. So you were going off of pulse. And what people looked like, and what how they were sweating, and what they what color were their tongue at the time, was, and all of this stuff, and it all worked together. And herbalism was a big part of that, and it was, I would say, pretty damn effective. Is it effective as like insulin for a diabetic? No, but that's not herbs' fault. Well, it's it, and also <laughs> every, you can for everything it's thing it's. You can do dietary exactly. things for and diabetes. changing your diet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. It, I think people should respect herbalism and consider looking into it. Well, when I, when I was a kid, I had uh, iron deficiency. Um, so I was, I was constantly, you know, pallid. I mean, some of it was genetic, you know. Um, I'm just, you are pale. I am a bundle <laughs> of all of the recessive genes you could possibly have. <laughs> so, and then that's just exciting in so many ways. I can't go out in the sun, whatever. But I remember the, the whole, oh, she's, she's got iron deficiency. The doctor that my mom took me to was an old country doctor. I mean, he's an MD, but he was sensible. He, he, he used herbs and plants just as much as he did medicine. Mm-hmm. And he told my mother to feed me dandelion greens. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the iron. Lots of iron. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cook in the iron and, skillet. Yeah. Yep. yep. And cook in, and he asked if she cooked in an iron skillet. And she said, well, yeah, because that's, that's what everybody what cooks had. with in <laughs> yeah. West Virginia. Yeah. And he said, well, that will help. Um go ahead and cook uh, tomatoes in your iron skillet. And she said, oh, mom said not to do that. And he was like, well, it'll mess with your seasoning a little bit, but it'll also draw iron out of the skillet because it's acidic. So she did that. And, uh, oh, but the dandelion greens, she, she had to work to get me to eat those. He finally had to tell her. that He had to finally tell her how to make them taste better which was tomatoes and bacon uh, oh bacon makes everything better that that was his, yes that was his version <laughs> of you know a spoonful of sugar will let the medicine go down wait so you cook <laughs> the greens you cook the greens with um bacon and add some tomatoes that- yep yep in an iron pan and he good. also suggested that she picked them too big that she mm-hmm. she picked them too old so the bitterness was Fresh, really really little, strong little ones yeah um the smaller ones he said you sh- she should use that what else did he say he said if if you can only find the big ones then you boil them a little bit first and then put them in the skillet just with... like collards uh-huh yep 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 yeah i liked kale my kale was my mm-hmm. favorite now i'll eat all of them it doesn't matter you're making me look forward I have to, to trick s- my boyfriend about kale. Oh. Because he loves every other green. He likes mustard green, collard green, beet greens, 
actual shard, which is grown from, it's still beet greens, but it's grown to be greens, not <laughs> the top has of these beets little, that you chop up and eat. Too, has these little tiny good. roots that are sad that can't be beets. Oh. oh. And he hates kale. Maybe you should try bacon. And that's what I do. I cook it with bacon and very browned mushrooms, mm. and I braise it a little bit mm. so it wilts, and then I don't tell him. Yeah, here. <laughs> You know how I get it into to my my people here, uh, your stepfather and your brother. I put it in pesto. Oh, oh. fresh! Yeah. See, I use spinach in pesto because it keeps it from turning black. Mm-hmm. It covers up the oxidization of the basil, so mine's always green. And people are like, "Oh, you could taste that!" And no, you can't. Just stop. You can't taste it. <laughs> right. Just um, eat. But what, not the way you make pesto with no, the, the, the amount of garlic and cheese exactly. and basil that goes into your pesto. <laughs> exactly. Mm, you your can't taste it. Your pesto is delicious, but should be considered an assault. It is. Well, it's medicinal um, since we're talking medicine. It's delicious. Um, but yeah, uh, I decided to start putting fresh young kale leaves. Take the spines off. Take the center rib out. I'll eat that raw myself, but... And then put it in there. And the garlic just completely covers that little bit of bitterness. Nice. So they've been eating kale and not knowing it for like, <laughs> I don't know, 10 years, something like that. I, I just don't tell them. And they don't listen to the podcast, so they'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Y'all can keep my secret. We'll keep your secret. It's safe with us. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I love greens. I do too. I do too. Greens are the best. And uh, they do making, they do help with iron. You're making me excited for the dandelions to start coming up in my front yard. Mm-hmm. And I can, it, well, if it keeps warm, it ain't going to be very long. Yeah. Because, <laughs> geez. The daffodils are up an inch or so. Yeah. I've noticed mm-hmm. crocuses. Cro- mm-hmm. bloom- are I've they blooming? About. They're not blooming, but they're, but they're up. up. We, we've we got little inch and a half, two inch crocus leaves, <gasps> spears popping on up. The snowdrops will be here any day. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it's spring beauties. Spring beauties. Spring beauties yes. are beautiful. Spring beauties are my favorite wildflower. And the he- my hellebores are, are, have buds on them, very low down by the oh ground. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I haven't seen buds on my hellebore yet. I went out and looked down in the leaves. Yeah, they're it, they're probably me. covered by leaf litter still. Well, and you probably had gotta... yeah. I was gonna say I'm you sorry. probably hadn't Go been ahead. out and about too much. No, no. Uh, in all this cold. Yeah. Cold. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. I hide. I hide yeah. from the cold as much as possible. Um, but there's the beautiful hellebores planted by Morton that I've become friends with. Because I used to park at Morton and walk up the hill to get to things. Oh. And I would, I always stop and I chat with the hellebore because I'm a lunatic. Um, well, if you listen, they'll talk back. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and they're so cheerful. Mm-hmm. They're such a cheerful they're, hellebore. They're plants. very optimistic. I mean, here we are in January. And here yep. they come. Yep. And they're just like, all right, we're doing this. And I'm like, okay, buddies. But I haven't stopped and seen them since break and i need to i need to go Check say hello in. we have them just outside our breakfast window so i can see um mm-hmm. breakfast table and see what's happening they're from my mother's garden in north carolina 
couple of years before she died, she insisted that I dig some up, plant them here, and they're growing in the most in shade and clay, but they seem to love it. So, oh yeah, you can grow them in anything. It's a very sturdy plant. Mm -hmm. I wish that it was easier to uh, transplant uh, ramps and may apples, but it it isn't easy. That may apples don't plant don't transplant well. They don't like to be moved. They like to move on their own. I, you know, they're very independent. Yes, and ramps just they like they're very really they're very like colonial in that they really? like to be with lots of may apples, mm-hmm. but they don't approve of of moving. Um, well, I understand that once they get started, they I mean there are stands of them that might be a oh, yes. hundred years old. Yes, yeah. something they just yep. keep going. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Once they are established, they just keep spreading and they they live seemingly forever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love May apples. And uh, the but but ramps are my favorite because then I can put, you know, ramps in the pesto and then I can put more kale in because you can't taste it. <laughs> so everybody gets more iron in their in their system. We have so many places sh- to look at uh, to see all these spring ephemerals, the spring wildflowers here in Athens, yeah. out the bike path. And, uh, um, anyone can access or just walk around, you know, looking in the yeah, in the uh, even the median strips. Uh, there are things, oh yeah, things growing. Yeah, we have fawn lilies out up the street here, just growing in the median. I yeah. think they've probably been there a long time. Yeah, the woods in Athens really do just sneak into the town oh that's a good way to put it yep they sneak into the town the woods sneak into the the wilderness just has fingers all through town Mm -hmm. like and it's not just the wildlife like you say the wildflowers come into town the grapevines the trees everything comes into town i'm uh, glad to hear you call it a finger we have i think of it as a finger from over um, ac- across the highway in the state park, um, kind of a, a, a finger of that. It comes behind our house. It's very small, yep. yeah. but you can you can tell that. And with the big rocks, um, yep, yeah, yeah. You live on the same ridge we do. So. We do, yeah, yeah. North, North Ridge. I, I looked on a map, older map once. It's also called Copperhead Ridge, which. Uh, there's a reason that for that. They knew. <laughs> there's so many copperheads in Mom's backyard. Oh yep. no way. Yeah, well, I don't yes. cultivate it. It's at a 45-degree angle, so it's just, you know. Wow. The copperhead's grass. one. So oh, they, 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 can, they can have it. Although I do have turkey tail <laughs> mushrooms in a patch oh, wow. on an old ash stump. Mm-hmm. Um, now, our next-door neighbor found lion's mane mushrooms across the road up on Columbia in uh-huh. that wooded area yeah. that, you know, goes straight down the slope. Yeah. Um, the so river. She found those. And uh, yeah, people forage in Athens. Uh, and then, then there's the graveyard apples up on the, the Catholic cemetery at the edge. Yeah. Um, we, ha- we have pawpaws. Um, a, yeah, a, a, I have some. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, raccoons eat those. That's about all that eats them. Well, I eat them, but uh, they're, uh, I don't think I don't know if the deer eat them or not. 
Yeah, they do. I don't know. They do, I think. Deer will eat just about anything. I think I get to them before the deer do, is what that is. (laughs) Black walnut we have in the woods next to our house. And doesn't the Um, walnut hull have a lot of uses? um, Oh, you can use it as ink. Mm -hmm. You can boil it down into uh, walnut ink. Um, And as I'm trying to remember, there is a medicinal use for the... I think fung, an antifungal, antifungal. Yeah, um, I think that's what it. Yeah, yeah. Because I was remembering you have to grind, you have to do something to it and boil it or grind it and make it into a paste. And you may have to get the green hulls for that. Yeah, Yeah, it's a skin treatment. Yeah. Yes. I dimly recall this. Yeah. (laughs) From my weird mix of what I know what to do with plants. And uh, um, what that I got from my grandmothers mostly, and my grandfather, and some from mom, and some from books, and firsthand. There's um, yeah. a t- an aperitif, a digestif, an Italian digestif nocino that's made with the mm-hmm. green hulls, the green hulls of the uh, walnut, which is very nice. Well, you add a lot of other things to it. Yeah, um, I yeah, think it would be. I think it's just a tincture. I think it'd be easily made. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and, it it should be. Mm-hmm. We should we should ask Dan because he's he's our tincture man. Okay. True. True. We have a we have an uncle who's an alchemist. Ah. <laughs> we we have we have a a strange chosen family of the whole family many, many strange interests and abilities and interests and hobbies <laughs> so we have another one who's a bookbinder yeah and a calligrapher my father yep. came with a, a good strand of of southern folk um orientation um i guess not really healing he would have things like oh i thought he could charm warts off with a mm-hmm. something about a match and invisible string and my mother uh, well, I was I was born a, a fourth generation Christian scientist when we left with that when I was six years old. But her orientation to that, which is kind of a mystic, she had kind of a mystic orientation. Um, so somehow the Southern Baptist and the Christian scientist <laughs> managed to um, meld together. But they came with some interesting, uh, interesting background. Anyway, my mother was uh, very much in. She raised us with tons of fairy tales, folk tales, everything from Grimm's mm-hmm. fairy tales to the Jack tales to yeah, all the old Uncle Remus virgins, all that. So, yeah. Stories, yeah. stories. Yeah. Stories are important. Mm-hmm. They stories are. Stories are how we understand mm-hmm. the world. And ourselves and each other. Yeah. yeah. And it's really, really fascinating to me how threads of stories will go from culture to culture to culture, and it's the same. Or sa- from family to family, and it's the same mm-hmm. motifs that mm-hmm. you see across yeah. the globe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's Cinderella, for example. There's a Cinderella mm-hmm. story from ancient Egypt about Rhodoptus. That was her name, and she was given. Uh, gold slippers by I'm trying to remember it was it was a spirit of the Nile but I can't remember which one it was Um, but she had golden slippers that drew the eye of 
the uh, king, and she ran away and lost one, and that's how they found her, was through trying on the shoe. Those golden slippers. And all I can think is that story got told to somebody who brought it somewhere, who told it to somebody else, because it's a good story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, Cinderella's a great story. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of suspense. <laughs> There's wicked people. There's good people. magic. Beautiful dresses. There's romance. Yes. And everybody's fancy. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's a great story. If I heard that story as a traitor. Oh, yeah. Like, I would Bring be telling home. my children <laughs> that when I got home. And then they would tell other kids because they'd be like, I heard this cool story from my mom or my dad. And you would tell it to everybody. Yep. I recently. So who knows how these happen? Either we all come up with them simultaneously or stories have just gone around the world since forever. Both and. Well, we, um, you know, humans, humans have many of the same. I, I recently learned that Jack and the Beanstalk has been established as the oldest story going back thousands and thousands of years. And it, it, just That's that way, wonderful. it then evolved itself to come, I guess, to eventually the British Isles that made it way here. May have yeah, come up. Wonderful. May have come up also through um, the stories of native native people. Jack and the Beanstalk, yeah, making yeah. something from nothing, a handful of beans. Yep, that Ad- makes me so happy. Adventure. That's a gold. great story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love to cunning. A hero who's smart yeah. and not just strong. A magical bird. I learned that while I was researching beans because I I have a community garden plots over in the east side community garden. And I love to grow green, uh, grow beans is my favorite thing. So I have a big bean arbor with the green beans over it that makes shade when we're all hot over there gardening in July. Uh, So I I learned about beans and read about uh, that story of the um, long, long history of Jack and the Beanstalk. That's wonderful. That is amazing. I, uh, one of my favorite things in culinary school was the class that we did in, in storeroom management. And it was also identifying, uh, ingredients. And the, the, uh, instructor had this bag and he just dumped it on the, the metal table and said, how many of these beans can you identify? to everyone and I I got most of them but not all of them good for um, you because I think that beans are cool with all the different colors and shapes and sizes and everybody just looked at me and went you are a culinary nerd <laughs> do you know <laughs> all the like, beans I am I am yeah. I'm a bean nerd then he did the same thing with a spice mixture and I got everything but mace <laughs> Because it was a little tiny flake of oh, mace. Oh, okay. okay. It was it was not in the shape of like a net shape that it is on the outside That's of fair. Nutmeg. I was going to say because it's it's such a distinctive color. I know the pretty pretty red, that dark red mahogany mm. color. But um, I missed that one. Do you have some favorite beans? Do I have some favorite beans? I really like. To cook? like I don't like the name of them because I think that they're somewhat kind of racist, but yellow Indian woman, mm-hmm. that is my favorite mm-hmm. soup bean. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely my favorite bean besides my Acopa 
to make um, refrides because mm-hmm. they they come apart creamy. They, they have very thin skins. They're not, you know, tough and kind of onerous and gets in there after you mush it. But the soup is just so delicious, even on mm. its own, even without a ham hock. It's just so oh, good. Bean soup is the best, especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 I love beans. Um, they make me happy. I'm boring. My very favorite bean will be and forever will be pinto beans because you can do everything with them. Mm-hmm. And because my favorite way to eat beans is just a pot of beans. Cornbread. <laughs> raw onion bacon on top. And onion mm-hmm. and just a pot of beans. Um, very nutritious. That's, but then I also love cranberry beans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are Because those they're are pretty. Yeah. Yeah, the West Virginian is showing in you if you like, if you pinto beans, cornbread, and pinto beans are the best. Raw onion on top. Raw onion. Everything. Mm -hmm. Yep. Like they make excellent refrieds, pot of beans, soup beans, chili, because I I put them in anything that requires beans. Yeah. Because for chili, they thicken the chili for you. Yeah. I think I'm going to go put a pot of beans on after this. <laughs> I, I really so. am. I hadn't decided yet. I think I might too. I haven't decided what to have for supper yet, and I think this is what it's going to well, be. Well, and I've got I've got kale, so I could, and I think I've got cornmeal, so I might make cornbread and beans and greens, greens and beans for dinner. That's a good. That sounds good. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Oh, I'll have to right. eat all the kale myself. <laughs> yeah. I'll make another vegetable for, for <laughs> Nick. I'll be nice. I think, I think the, do you have a particular uh, cough and cold remedy that you use for yourself? Catherine? Oh, cough and cold. Well, the first stop is uh, a toddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is um, some bourbon with a good splash of water and some, some good honey. There it's, some nice honey at our farmer's market from a lady down on the Ohio river and uh, a little squeeze of lemon. That's my first yeah. go. But, you know, I have some things from um, Katie Crabb. There's one she calls, I'm not getting sick. And um, cause she has to be careful in her nomenclature. Um, and I, I think that's very good. Um, just up at the onset. Um, sore throat. I don't know. Honey. I guess that would be oh, the, neti. the best ingredient. Yeah. The neti pot when um, if you got a head cold, you're head all congested. At least that's what happens to me. Um, I, use I have to do it every day or, or else I can't breathe. So yeah, it's a nice <laughs> I'm a big believer in <laughs> the neti, special sinus neti yeah. pot. Yeah. Um, Reiki. I do. I had learned late Reiki a long, long time ago. Sometimes that's nice. Again, on the uh, on the face, if the you know for the head cold, kind of loosen things up. Just kind of soothing, actually. But uh, I, I'm, yeah. I haven't had a cold in a while. Knock on wood. Good. Knock on wood. <laughs> Avoid it. Two. I had a terrible. Yeah, terrible. One. I had yeah. a terrible one a year and a half ago. There was some cold coming through. But um, how about you all? Well. Um... We have a family recipe that came, we can officially say it came from the old country. Yeah. Um, that came through our great 
great, my great, great, your great, yeah, um, grandmother's family or grandfather's family, which is it? Uh, she, you're the one who did the family tree. She learned it from her mom. That's what I thought. It's German. Um, it yeah, it comes from Germany, and we've modified it because it originally used beef broth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which at the time would have meant actually like calf's foot jelly beef broth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's vile when made that way. It works, but it's horrifying. It tastes really bad. Yeah. No one would ever <laughs> want to take it. You know. No. No. Um, and it's massive quantities of mint, mm. a couple cloves of garlic, ginger, black pepper, mm-hmm. um, and cloves. Yep. All boiled up. With honey and lemon. Yep. And it works wonders. And if you have to work and you can't just go to bed, you put black tea in it. Oh, so that'll keep you up a little bit. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. But instead of black tea, she used to make it with with beef broth. And that was, that was. It worked. And it was nourishing, but. Let's have that separate. I have been spared this because mom was like, I'm not making it like this. And then, of course, I, being a curious adult, made it with beef broth one day and was like, oh, no. no I know. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, we don't do that. And then I've got one that I I came up with that mixes Indian and... uh. Japanese and English sort of traditions. And it's green tea, honey, lemon, cardamom, Mm. cloves, black pepper, mint, and what's the other thing that I put in it? Oh, chili. Chili pepper. Ooh, all the good tastes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that one tastes better because it has no calf's foot jelly in it. It's not funky. <laughs> now, you know, I you like realize the with all the calf's garlic. foot jelly originally was what they did for Jell-O. That's, yes, that's, yes that, I'm that well you, aware. You didn't put anything but the calf's foot in, so it didn't taste like beef. And you put a lot of fruit in it or wine, and, and that made it taste good. That's what created the gelatin effect. Yep. Oh, my yes. goodness. Yeah. Yes. And that, that was the base of aspic, which I did not know about until I went to culinary school and was like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't need this. Um, we do not need and this is, fish-flavored jelly. No, no. And oh. this is why everybody went mad with excitement when artificial Jello gelatin came out. sheets yeah. were invented. Yep. Because all of a sudden gelatin was you didn't have to have easy affordable calves feet and came in colors. <laughs> <laughs> and people were like, "Oh my god. Yeah. This is so cool. <laughs> this is fancy hotel food yep. that we can make at home. Right. Oh my goodness." Right. Yep. And then Which in the 1950s in they everything. took it too far. <laughs> they took Put it too far in, it. in the 1950s. <laughs> Right. Completely ruined it. Jello molds with peaches inside. Yeah, that's oh, not yes. as bad as some of the terrible things that were done. <laughs> yeah, I, there's a book out. I'll put it in the show notes along with our recipes 
Um, oh, good. It's called the Gallery of Regrettable Food. Oh, and it what's is in it? Advertisements and recipes um, that were on the back of of boxes and and can labels from you know like the late '40s through mm-hmm. the mid '60s to early '70s, and there was some really scary looking stuff that I I'm not sure. It was actually food. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, those are the days of Tang. The breakfast yeah. drink. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we drank Tang because the astronauts did. The astronauts did. And TV dinners. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. uh, If your parents were going out on a Friday night, we'd have an excitement of a TV dinner. <laughs> yeah. Foil back the foil. <laughs> These little, yeah, cafeteria foil mm-hmm. things. and mm-hmm. Salisbury steak, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we've been going for a while, ladies. Yep. So we should we should (laughs) probably end it. Although, if you'd ever want to come back and we could talk uh, stories, Appalachian folk tales, and Mm -hmm. and all that, I would love to have you back. Stories. Finally, we we got to have you on in the first place because you know we planned to talk with you, you know. A month ago, and month then ago. I had to or fall down I, and hurt whenever, myself. And whenever I saw you, um, Morgana, at uh, mm-hmm. some sometime yes. back, yes, stories. Now that's a that's a whole powerful thing in counseling. We have narrative theory therapy. Yes, stories. Oh, oh, and um, oh, so many things. Stories. Yep, yep. We'll have you back yes. then. I'd love that if you want to come. That'll be fun. Love to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank All right. you for being here. Okay, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it, and good wishes to everyone. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.